Hello, welcome to the David Eagle Podcast. I'm recording this introduction in 2022, but we are looking back at 2016, a year that saw me release a podcast every single day in a project called David's Daily Digital Dollop. In a bit to streamline things so that we don't have 366 podcasts just for 2016 alone, I thought I would condense them into these weekly omnibus editions. You join me at week 12 in the project. We're in March, and currently I'm in Australia with my folk band, The Young'uns. I mentioned this last week, but apologies to the audio quality I was recording these things on the go, often very quickly because we had a very busy schedule and so there's often a bit of clipping and distortion and popping and all sorts of undesirable things, but hopefully that doesn't get in the way of the enjoyment of the content. When you hear this sound, it means we're moving on to the next dollop. Enjoy. Yesterday was meant to be fairly relaxed. We didn't have a gig, and so we planned to have a nice leisurely day in Melbourne, seeing some sights and being tourists, which you don't really get much of a chance to do when we're abroad because we're performing so much. I didn't write any of the dollop on the way in the car to Melbourne for the reasons mentioned in yesterday's dollop. I'd only just finished the last one and didn't have the energy or inspiration to start writing another one straight away. But we should be in Melbourne by 11am, and once we'd had some food and experienced some of the city, I'd probably have something to actually write about, and also possess the energy to be able to do it. But when we got to Melbourne Airport, things took an unexpected course. We needed to take a particular shuttle bus service to the car hire place to pick up our car. However, the information about what service we needed and where we needed to go was in Michael's email inbox. He'd thought that the email had saved onto his phone so that he could view it offline, but it hadn't. Never mind, we could just connect to the airport's free Wi-Fi and access the details from Michael's inbox. However, the Wi-Fi network appeared to be down and was telling us that there was current no connection available to the internet and to please try again soon, which we did repeatedly for about an hour. Eventually, Michael managed to get online and access the email. We found the information that we needed and then walked around the airport trying to locate where our specific shuttle bus picks up from. After half an hour of walking around, we still hadn't found it. Michael went off to try and find someone who worked in the airport to ask them where we would need to go, while Sean and I stood with the trolley loaded with instruments, bags and suitcases. As soon as Michael rounded the corner, Sean saw the shuttle bus we wanted across the road. Fantastic, except... Michael had gone, and we couldn't get a hold of him because none of us were able to make phone calls in Australia. I tried to connect to the Wi-Fi again while Sean ran across the road to talk to the driver to see if he could stall him for a little bit while I tried to get in contact with Michael, at least find out from the driver how long we had to wait for the next bus. A minute later, Sean came running back over the road and said that the driver wouldn't wait for another minute while we tried to get in touch with Michael, as there were lots of other people on the bus that we needed to drop off. But the good news was that the buses were every five minutes. But the bad news was that the Wi-Fi was playing up again, and so we were unable to contact Michael to tell him to come back. An hour passed, and with it went 12 buses, which we were unable to get on because we were still waiting for Michael. No sooner had bus 12 pulled away, Michael rounded the corner. The reason for his delay had been because there had been more dramatic developments. He had been stood in a queue for about 15 minutes waiting to speak to someone about where to get the shuttle bus from when his phone vibrated announcing an email. The email was from the car hire company and was headed confirmation of your cancellation. The message said that they had received and processed our cancellation and that our money would be refunded minus the admin fee for dealing with our booking. But we hadn't cancelled the booking. Michael needed to talk to the car hire company but none of us had any way of making a phone call. He tried making a call with Skype but the internet was very patchy and the first few attempts failed. Eventually he got through to someone and explained the situation. The man at the car hire company informed 
us that the cancellation had occurred as part of an automated process carried out by their computer system. This was because they actually didn't have any cars available. The reason that the booking had gone fine yesterday was because the company outsourced their booking to an online third-party site who had allowed the booking to occur, not realising that they were fully booked. Apparently this happened because this is also an automated computer process. It was only when someone from the car hire company got into the office that they realised what had happened. Rather than sending us an email explaining the issue, though, they simply sent a generic cancellation email, which is an automated email that is sent out whenever a cancellation is processed. So, as a result, we were now stuck in an airport with no means of getting to where we needed to go. Michael tried remonstrating with the person on the phone, but the man said that he could only apologise, but there was nothing he could do. However, on the plus side, he said that he would reimburse us the admin fees. How very kind. Well, that'll console us while we're aimlessly wandering the streets of Melbourne, trying to get to our hotel an hour's drive away. Michael was just about to hang up, defeated, when the man announced that he'd just heard that there actually was a car available, which he hadn't realised before because it hadn't yet been registered back onto the computer system. Brilliant. So it should be straightforward from here, then. Well... Not quite. When the cancellation is processed, the purchaser's details are gone. This meant that Michael had to go through loads of information on the phone, reproviding his insurance details and so on. Eventually, it was all sorted, and Michael returned to us. The three of us then stood waiting for the next shuttle bus. Five minutes later, it arrived. But when we tried to get on it, we were told that there wasn't enough room for our instruments and luggage and that we'd have to wait for the next one. The same thing happened for the next three buses. It was only when we were about to be turned down for the fourth time that I suddenly realised that Michael could go on the bus by himself, pick up the hire car and then drive back to pick us up. It was such an obvious solution, but the three of us were so drained, hungry and stressed that we hadn't thought of it before. Fifty minutes later, Michael was back at the airport in the hire car to pick us up. Except there was another snag. The hire company, although managing to locate a car, hadn't apparently got any sat-navs left. We were therefore in a major city with no clue where to go and no internet in order to get a map. We drove through the city following signs, but we got hopelessly lost. After an hour of driving, we had no idea where we were. We were so hungry that we had to stop and get something to eat. Fortunately, as well as providing sustenance, the cafe also supplied us with Wi-Fi, which meant we were able to get a map up and see where the heck we were and where to go. Consulting the map provided us with two bits of knowledge. Firstly, that we'd been only two minutes away at one point in the journey. But, unfortunately, the second thing that we discovered was that we were now 40 minutes away. Eventually, we found the hotel and breathed a sigh of relief. But the sigh was premature, for the saga hadn't ended yet. We tried to check into the hotel, but they didn't have our names on record. The booking hadn't been done through us, but by the people organising the tour. We assumed that the rooms had been booked in our names, which had been the case for the last two hotels on the tour. But they couldn't find our names on the system, and when we tried a few more names, giving the names of various people working for the tour company, just in case the booking had been made in their names, that also failed. I'm afraid we don't have anything on the computer for Cooney, Eagle or Hughes, sir. Uh, try Hawthorne? Uh, no, sir, nothing for Hawthorne. Try Crawford? No, I'm sorry, sir, nothing. Uh, uh, 
Try Simpson. It must have seemed like an elaborate scam just going into a hotel and trying to guess the name of someone who might have made a booking in a bid to have a free night in a hotel pretending to be the person whose name that you'd managed to hijack. Ah, yes, here we go again. The old, we're in a folk band and the rooms were booked by our tour company routine. We've seen it all before. I'm surprised that they haven't said Smith yet. I mean, surely if you're going to pull off a scam and try and find a name for someone who has booked to stay, you'd have thought that Smith is going to be the first choice that you pluck for. The idiots. Plus, they're not fooling us with that mock English accent. Terrible acting. None of the names that we tried worked. We'd have to get in touch with someone at the tour company to see what was going on. But in order to do this, we needed Wi-Fi. So we asked the man at the check-in desk if we could access Wi-Fi. But he said that we'd have to be checked in before they'd give us the Wi-Fi details. At this point, Michael, who had already been the recipient of a booking problem that day, snapped at the receptionist. Snapped at the receptionist, Michael. I did. Well, I don't know who snapped, really. You were, you were quite cool, but you were terse. But uh, I would say necessarily terse. Snapped at the receptionist that this was ridiculous. Surely they could make an exception, bearing in mind that we were trying to check in, but were unable to, and needed Wi-Fi in order to do so. We couldn't check in without the Wi-Fi, and yet we were being told that we couldn't have the Wi-Fi until we had checked in. Apparently, the reason that we co- they couldn't give us the Wi-Fi access wasn't because he was being churlish, sticking rigidly to company policy, but because the system was all automated, and the Wi-Fi could only be accessed as a guest by entering the name that we'd booked with, which obviously we didn't have. So, we had to use the reception computer to sign into Michael's emails and get the information that we needed. There then followed about an hour's worth of phone calls. We couldn't speak to the uh, main person responsible for organising the two because he was currently on a plane and other people were unsure of the situation. Eventually, the issue was resolved and two hours after arriving at the hotel, we were granted access to our rooms. It was now 6pm. We'd set off at about 6.30 in the morning and had assumed that we should be at the hotel for about 11am. Seven hours after the estimated time of arrival, we finally were in our rooms. We were all really hungry and needed a drink or two after the rigours of the day. The other two had an hour's rest and I typed up that day's dollop. I didn't have time to write, record and upload it, uh, so I'd have to wait until tomorrow, still today in Britain. By the time we got back from our evening out in Melbourne, we were all really tired. I might have had the staying power to record and release the dollop before heading to bed, but the other two were clearly tired and I didn't think it would be fair to force them to listen to me rambling about my nostrils, which was the exciting subject of yesterday's dollop. So, I went to bed. What happened the next day will be told to you, if you choose to find out, in tomorrow's dollop. But it is a story that clearly demonstrates just how ridiculous this crazy 366 consecutive daily blogs project has got. The absolute ridiculousness of this 366 consecutive daily blogs project really became apparent over the last 24 hours. The other two went straight to sleep after getting back from our evening out in Melbourne. I thought that I would quickly check tomorrow's dollop before going to sleep, so I sat on the bed with a laptop. The next thing I was aware of was waking up at 7am, lying on the bed with a laptop on top of my stomach. In fact, I'm not even sure at first if I realised that I'd been asleep, for as soon as I was back into consciousness, I immediately began reading the dollop from the point that I'd gone out of consciousness a few hours earlier. It appeared that I'd fallen asleep halfway through writing a sentence. Seconds after waking up, I had completed that sentence. Although, there was still another 290 days to go before I truly finished my sentence.
You see what I did there? I've done a little bit of a creative wordplay there. You're in safe hands, everybody. I'd written just over 700 words. It wasn't the most interesting or funny blog that I'd done, but it wasn't bad. Plus, I mean, obviously, I've got very high standards, haven't I? So it was still pretty good. I didn't really have time to do any more work on it. It was now 7am, and we planned to go out at 9 to do some touristy things in Melbourne, which we'd planned to do yesterday, but then all the shenanigans happened. I had less than two hours to tidy up what I'd written, record the audio version, edit all of my mistakes caused by my inept braille reading, upload the audio and written versions, promote it on Facebook and Twitter, and code the RSS feed to update the podcast. This was the 75th dollop featuring my peculiar nose sounds, which I hadn't yet edited down from the half an hour that I'd recorded. It would be madness to think that anyone would want to listen to half an hour of nose noises, although a minute would clearly be completely sane, normal and fine. As I was reading through what I'd written, I was struck with inspiration, and before I could stop myself, I'd written another thousand words on top of the 700 that I'd already written. By this point, the other two were up and getting ready to go out. I now had an hour to do everything that I needed to do. Plus, it was going to take me even longer to read and edit now, because I'd increased the dollop by 150%. While the other two were brushing their teeth, showering and readying themselves to go out, I had only just finished writing the dollop, the length of which would have sufficed for two or three blog posts. The other two said that they would wait until I'd finished, but I knew there was going to be probably another two hours before I was done, so I just told them to go into the city without me. I had come all the way to Australia, and rather than going out and experiencing the place, I had chosen to sit in a hotel editing highlights of a half an hour recording of my nose making weird sounds. To be honest, I think the word highlights might be stretching it a bit. It was essentially someone's nose making odd noises when he breathed out. The plan had been to set off for Melbourne early, spend the day in Melbourne, and then come back at about 4pm ready for that night's gig. As the other two pointed out to me, not only would I be passing up the opportunity to go out and do something in a country that I'd never been in before, but also I had no way of really going anywhere or doing anything once I'd finished a dollop. We didn't have any cash on us as we were just using the young'un's card, so I wasn't able to get any food. But the prospect of sitting in a room alone and hungry for hours while the other two went out and explored Melbourne was a better one than the notion that my nasal noises wouldn't be released in time, meaning that I'd fail the David's Daily Digital Dollop Challenge only a fifth of the way through. I finished the dollop, had a shower, and then replied to people's comments on the last few dollops. My day had so far consisted purely of dollop-related matters. Here's another example to demonstrate how obsessive a project this has become. I realised that I hadn't added the correct tag to the start of the Nasal Noises audio file, meaning that it wouldn't show up in stats, and I would have no idea how many listeners that it had gained. I was genuinely annoyed at myself for forgetting to add the file to the stat service. I swore out loud and called myself insulting words before I realised one idiot I was being for caring about any of this and that my life priorities and my sense of perspective had clearly gone spectacularly and worryingly out of kilter. I thought that I should maybe do something else, do something a bit relaxing that wasn't dollop-related for a change. Otherwise, I would definitely be driven mad by the whole thing. But then, a message appeared on my laptop that filled me with horror. The Wi-Fi would only last for another three hours. I couldn't be certain that the venue that we were playing at tonight would have Wi-Fi. There was nothing for it 
but to quickly make another dollop. I'd literally just finished writing and recording dollop 75, and now I was about to immediately start writing dollop 76. I had three hours to write, record, and publish the dollop. It was a race against the Wi-Fi time bomb. I powered through the recording and the editing and managed to get the dollop published a minute before the Wi-Fi was lost. Success. Well, I suppose it depends on your definition of success, but I had done it. After my blogging marathon on Wednesday, we headed to our Melbourne gig, which was taking place in a jazz club. There were signs on the building declaring itself to be the home of jazz in Melbourne. Looking at the list of other acts who had appeared at the place seemed to indicate that we were the first folk group to have played there. Had they gotten us confused with another group with a similar name? Maybe there's an experimental jazz trio called the Young Nuns, and the poor dyslexic secretary is going to get fired tomorrow morning when her mistake is realised. Are we going to have to pretend to be an experimental jazz trio called the Young Nuns in order to save a dyslexic secretary's job? I suppose you might think that this is far too difficult a task, given that we sing unaccompanied folk songs, but surely we could just throw in a few discords and do a bit of scatting? After all, I know a thing or two about the art of scatting, having read one of the most popular tomes on the subject, the doobie-doos and the doobie-don'ts of scatting. If anyone contests that what we're singing is experimental jazz, then we could simply argue that the fact that they don't recognise it as experimental jazz proves just how experimental it actually is. So much so that they've not heard anything like it in the experimental jazz world before. A watertight argument, I'm sure you'll agree. But it wasn't the fact that we weren't a jazz group that we needed to worry about. There was another surprise for us. Five minutes before we were due to go on, we saw one of the programmes. It turned out that they knew that we weren't a jazz group, as the programme described us as a folk group. We breathed a sigh of relief, although I think we were all a little bit disappointed that we wouldn't get a chance to do our flailing a cappella jazz solos that we'd spent the last two hours practising. But just because we weren't expected to play jazz, it didn't mean that we were out of the woods yet. Closer inspection of the programme highlighted another area of concern. The programme didn't just describe us as a folk group, but said in big, bold letters that we were an Irish folk group, singing Irish songs. This is completely untrue. We don't sing any Irish songs. There was no time to practice a completely new repertoire in under five minutes. Well, we'd need at least ten minutes to pull that off. Our MC at the Melbourne gig was completely completely different to the Port Ferry MCs, who spent 20 minutes chatting to us before our gig, writing down as much information about us as he could for his introduction. Our MC tonight had only popped in fleetingly an hour before we were due to start, and hadn't asked us any questions at all. We'd just been instructed to listen out until we heard the MC's introduction, and then just go straight onto the stage directly from our green room. There wasn't anyone around to correct them about the fact that we weren't an Irish folk group, and that we wouldn't be singing any Irish traditional songs, and even if if there had been someone to tell. We were due on in less than three minutes, and so there wasn't anything really that anyone could do. It's not as if they'd pull the plug on the gig due to the revelation. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid the gig tonight has been cancelled. We were going to fire the secretary who was meant to buck the experimental jazz trio, the Young Nuns. But then we let her off the hook when she informed us that the group that she'd accidentally bucked were in fact an Irish folk group, and that it was the day before St. Patrick's Day. So we went ahead with the gig. But now we've just learned that they're not even Irish. They're English. I know. I completely understand why you're booing. Believe me, I'm just as livid as you, and I'll fire that secretary first thing in the morning. Now, I could let the young'uns come and play for you, but none of us want that, do we? We're not having this place polluted by English folk. Surely the MC would have read our biog and has now realised that we're not an Irish band. 
Ladies and gentlemen, came the voice of the MC. Please welcome, all the way from Ireland, the young'uns. Fortunately, it turned out that most of the audience knew more than the MC and the gig organisers and were aware of the fact that we were English. We asked how many people in the audience were expecting an Irish band singing Irish songs and no one said yes. In fact, most of the audience knew that we were from Teesside and there were quite a few people who originally came from the northeast of England. It felt like we were playing to an audience who'd seen us many times before, even though none of them had. Quite a few of them had seen us at the Port Ferry Festival last weekend and others had heard us on the radio or read about us. People were shouting out requests for songs, and gratifyingly there were songs that we actually sang, so it was evident that we were known by the people there. It was really heartening to note that we travelled thousands of miles to the other side of the world, yet 80 people had turned up at a weekday gig to see us, and clearly knew who we were. We've just done our final gig at Blue Mountains Festival in Australia, which went really well, as of all the gigs. It seems as if the audience have really enjoyed our sets, although there was one notable exception, a lady at our final gig who accused me of being sexist and chauvinistic. One of the mic cables of my accordion seemed to be playing up, and so the stage manager came onto the stage during the set to fix it. I was in the middle of saying something, and then she just appeared by me and knelt down in order to change the lead. I'd obviously realised what she was doing, but becoming distracted by her sudden presence next to me, I forgot what I had been talking about, so I changed tack. I turned to her and said something like, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but if you wanted a date with me, you could have just waited until I got off the stage. The audience reacted well to this, and there was a good bit of laughter. I then turned to the audience and said something like, she's clearly keen, I mean, she's kneeling at my feet. Again, the audience responded with a good amount of laughter. There weren't any audible tuts or hisses or sounds of booing or any noises of disapproval. The stage technician transferred the cable and then left the stage, and then I took the opportunity to thank her and all of the fabulous festival sound team. The audience applauded. Then, just as she reached the bottom of the stage steps, I turned to her and shouted my room number at her. It was a spontaneous bit of ad-libbing that just occurred in the moment, and I think it was better than an awkward silence while the lady made the changes. The stage manager didn't seem to be upset or annoyed as far as I could tell, but there was one lady who rebuked me after the gig. You wouldn't have said that if it was a man, she said. We informed her that we probably would. After all, many people who have watched us over the years have assumed that the young'uns are gay. Or at least one of us is. And there used to be quite a bit of homoerotic banter during sets. In fact, Sean once pointed out to me that I probably was massively impairing my chances of becoming acquainted with any interested female fans because I've most likely convinced them that I'm gay due to the things that I've said on stage. Anyway, the point is that I probably would have said the same thing to the stage manager if it was a man. But, of course, she didn't believe me and didn't accept that as an argument. I was surprised that she could have listened to our songs and the things that we were saying in between them and still come away with the view that I was sexist and chauvinistic. We sang Sidney Carter's John Ball about the priest who was viewed as a radical and executed for daring to say that all men and women should be equal. That was the very last song that we sang, and then the bit with the stage manager came right at the start of the gig, so she had clearly heard an hour's worth of songs about equality and justice, and she still came away with the impression that I was sexist. Perhaps she thinks that I just pretend to care about these things for money, and I let my true colours inadvertently show themselves with that spontaneous bit 
afraid of ad-libbing with the stage manager. It could be that the complaining lady has had bad experiences with sexism in her life and that's why maybe she was a bit oversensitive. Or maybe you're reading this and you are shocked by my ignorance and bigotry. Feel free to let me know your thoughts and leave a comment. Obviously, comments from men will be replied to first and will be given more weight than those from females. But that's not sexist, it's just common sense and logical. But you women wouldn't understand that because your brains aren't logical, are they? Well, I best leave this dollop here as I need to get in the shower and prepare myself just in case the stage manager took my invitation seriously. Thanks a lot for listening. Oh, hang on. Who's that? The door. Hello, David. I'm ready. Come in. Come in, my dear. Oh, I like it when you use that condescending language. That's right, love. On the bed. I'll just finish this dollop off. Oh, my goodness. One of the performers performing at uh, Blue Mountains Festival in Australia was chatting to me, and she was saying that folk music isn't her main source of income. And she's a, a rather successful folk musician, but that's not her main source of income. Her main source of income was writing and performing bawdy songs. She's commissioned to write bawdy songs for music hall and for cabaret. I just think this is an absolutely amazing thing, a way of making a living. Like she genuinely can make a living from writing writing and performing bawdy songs, smutty songs. And there's a kind of an art to it, because sometimes she's she's commissioned to write a song for a certain type of event, and it might be that she knows that for that event, for instance, she's kind of got to tone it down. She can't be too smutty. She's kind of got to do a bit more subtlety. And then there's other events that she does, and she knows there that she's going to have to be as smutty as possible. So she has to cater how smutty she is and how much innuendo there is or how much just blatant sex there is <laughs> in her songs and now she's become such an expert at it that she kind of just like I said what are you going to do tomorrow morning she said oh well I've got to write a, a bawdy song for this uh, cabaret uh, night um, so I'll, you know I'll, I'll do that that'll take me a couple of hours and then I'll uh, I'll just have a, a lazy afternoon really just have a lazy rest of the day and I just think it's absolutely brilliant you just oh, I'll just knock out a bawdy song I mean it's the kind of job that you just wouldn't imagine existing in a way I mean this girl is only 23 as well and she's been doing it for a couple of years and you like, how do you fall into something like this I mean it's not like the kind of job that you can just sort of you get taught about at school really you don't go to your careers advisor and what would you like to do oh I was thinking I'd like to uh, write bawdy songs that's how I'd like to make my money you know sort of writing smutty songs so that conversation led on to me mentioning the fact that when I was at university I wrote a song which I think would fall under the bawdy umbrella I thought this could be the perfect opportunity to feature that song I've taken out a couple of the verses because they were a bit cringeworthy to be honest but the rest of it's alright and I hope you'll uh, you'll enjoy it. It's kind of, this is a song written when I was 18 year old. No idea what inspired it, but uh, it's called Sister Abby's in the Abbey Tonight and it tells the story about a rather curious young nun. I mean, this doesn't help, bearing in mind yesterday's dollop was all about the fact that someone accused me of being sexist. And now, in my subsequent dollop, the day after, I release a song about a nun and her various exploits, the sexualization of a nun. But, you know, what... What can you do? You know, it just so happens that that's the way things have fallen. So this is me at the age of 18 with my song, kind of designed to sound like a sort of an old recording, I suppose, like a sexually motivated Noel Coward, perhaps. This is Sister Rabbi's in the Abbey tonight. Back tomorrow. Goodbye. Well, 
Living as a nun isn't very fun When you're working with monks who are hunks I'm the virgin celibate nun Who wants some rumpy pumpy pum with monks I've got a cunning plan to get myself a man No ordinary men, but monks Well, I shall creep into their place and I'll show my pretty face When I have got them all drunk Oh, Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight She's feeling all right The monks like her cause she's nice and tight Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight so I crept into the monks' quarters and exchanged their waters for alcohol. It was Blue Nun. Then I crept out of their quarters and when they drank their <coughs> waters, I went back in to have some fun. Oh, Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight. She's feeling all right. The monks like her cause she's nice and tight. Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight. Well, I don't want to be rude, I don't want to be crude, but those monks sure examined my loot. Yeah, I'm telling you, dude, those monks are in the mood, and they tasted my forbidden fruit. Oh, Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight. Yes, she's feeling all right. The monks like her, cause she's nice and tight. Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight. Upon hearing the terrible din that all this activity was making, a group of lady vicars from the local Protestant church over the road thought they'd go along to see why those Catholics were having so much fun. So in came some lady vicars, and they took off their knickers, and soon they were funny undressed. <laughs> what more can I say? They got on their knees to pray, and bowed their heads and confessed. Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight. She's feeling all right. Looks like her, cause she's nice and fly. Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight. Yeah. Well, everything's going nicely, isn't it? But then, oh, no. oh, oh. along came the priest! Oh, but the dirty beast joined in with the monks. What a beast! The monks are now a priest! All of them incredibly sexy hunks! Oh, Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight! Yes, she is, my friend! She's feeling alright! The monks like her, cause she's nice and tight! Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight! Oh, as if that wasn't enough! What now? Then Whoa. the bishop came along. But he took off his thong what? and joined in with the priest and the monks. <laughs> the bishop's prong was long. He was very well hung. Bigger than the priests and monks, chunks. Hey, she's feeling all right. Like her, cause she's nice and tight. Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight. Join in, Sister Abby's in the Abbey tonight. Oh, yeah, she is. She's feeling alright. Oh, the monks like her, cause she's nice and tight. Sister Abby's in the
The people putting together the tour have produced a booklet for us which tells us what we're doing and when. There's also information about local attractions, places to eat and drink, fuel stations and other points of interest. At the back of the booklet is a glossary of handy Australian phrases. I think the tour management company think that we're a lot more sex, drugs and rock and roll than we actually are, given their choice of phrases to include in this handy list. Amber fluid, beer. A blow in the bag. A breathalyzer test. A booze bus. Police vehicle. Used to catch drunk drivers. A technical yawn. To throw up. Especially as a result of overconsumption of alcohol or narcotics. A liquid laugh is another word for the act of vomiting. To crack a fat means to get an erection. Franger or franger is a condom. To have a naughty means to have sex. White pointers is a term to describe a woman's breasts. If only our tour management company knew that for the first week we were in bed and straight to sleep by about ten after having a fairly civilised evening meal with maybe a couple of drinks. There has been no vomiting, no naked women, no sex or drugs. Although, in fairness, there's still another week of the tour to go, so those phrases might prove useful yet. Before the gig, we were looking through the list of phrases. I thought that we could maybe play a game of guess the Australian phrase with one of the festival acts for the Young'uns podcast. So, we highlighted the interesting phrases, which are the ones listed above. We then went on stage, leaving the booklet on our green room table. Chances are that the stage manager saw the list of phrases in the booklet when she was in the green room. If she then noted the kind of phrases that we deemed important to highlight, then she might see this as further evidence of the kind of man I am, a womanising, boozy lout. But... I have not lived up to the phrase list in the slightest. The only thing that I've had to drink today is water, a fresh orange juice and a jasmine tea. Perhaps next year, word might get out about how unrock and roll we are and they'll provide us with a more suitable phrase list to cater for a jasmine tea-drinking, non-sex-having bore who spends his spare time blogging. Last week I wrote about the issues booking into our hotel in Melbourne and tonight we've just discovered that our tour management company have given us the wrong information for our flight. In our information booklet it says that we are meant to be flying tomorrow. However, we've just found out that our flight has actually departed today. We only found this out by chance because we needed to book on an extra item of luggage and when we typed in our flight number we were informed that the flight had actually already departed earlier that day. In fairness to the tour management company, they were probably too busy making sure that we were armed with facts such as how to refer to female breasts and erections in Australian slang. And the incidental stuff like getting from A to B and having somewhere to sleep kind of got a bit forgotten, which is understandable. I'm writing this part of the dollop in bed at 6am in the morning. I can smell toast, which I assume is because breakfast is being cooked in the hotel. However, I remember 
hearing from someone that apparently one of the warnings that you're about to have a stroke is being able to smell burnt toast. At the moment, the toast doesn't smell burnt, although I am now lying here paranoid in case the toast does start to smell like it's burning. I am pretty sure that breakfast isn't served until 6.30 in the hotel, so is it a bit premature for me to be able to smell toast? If you're about to have a stroke, then do you immediately smell burnt toast, or do you smell the toast cooking first and then burning? Any doctors listening to this? I mean, it's quite an intellectual blog, so I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs>